Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. My name is Michael Fling. I'm the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my pen pal who is begging me for pins, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I am holding that saltpeter hostage until you do it. It's such a good joke. There are, you know, this show, Joke for Joke, is like, I gotta say, incredibly strong and lots of payoff. They lots of set payoff. Up and they do not set up anything that they don't pay off. And no, we respect them for that. We do. It's a it's a very well-written book by Peter Stone uh, with music and lyrics by Sherman Edwards. But, but yes, I was going to say, but first you got to, I was going to say, but first you got to remind us of the clue because we haven't actually said the show. This <gasps> is like a setup, but it's, oh. it's fine. We're organic. What it reminds us of the clue about this show um, that we'll be um, getting to know. Well, the clue was this show holds the record for the longest break between songs. Um, which I think is like 20 to 30 minutes of talking. It's a long talking, that scene three. It's a lot. It is. It is. And I read somewhere that like the orchestra was allowed to like leave the pit during their time, yes. which they're never allowed to do. Which I, you know, I, yeah, I think it's only fair. It's yeah. only fair. Yeah, go um, take a break. And of course we are talking about 1776, um, the the musical about the Declaration of Independence that everybody decided was a terrible idea and uh, and yet here it is a classic musical um, that we'll be uh, putting in the spotlight and getting to know which honestly just goes to show that most musicals that become classics seem like terrible ideas listen I say you say it speak on it I take any good musical and boil it down to a sentence idea and it probably sounds like a bad idea for a musical yeah. It's I mean, true. I remember telling people about Hamilton and being like, it's a hip hop show about, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton. And people were like, what? Ugh. Famously, when I first heard about Hamilton, I said, didn't we already do 1776? <laughs> I mean, and look at us now. And look, look at, at us, us now. now. <laughs> Jaded, cynical. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to correct ourselves for the record. <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of 1776 in 60 seconds. And I'm going to go ahead and say that um, I, I feel okay about this one. Because um, I don't really think I'm going to go into all of the, the nuances, but we'll see. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is going to be one that either takes you 20 seconds or, or three minutes. Yeah, it's terrible. All right. It's, there's a lot in there. Let's, okay. Let's see. Let's see what we got. Let's see what we got. All right. July 4th. stupid (laughs) okay so uh we've got john adams he is from massachusetts and really wants uh america to be independent from britain famously um and we're in the constitutional congress um where we've got all of the um is it the constitutional congress that's what it's called um and uh there we've got all the representatives of all the 13 colonies who are um you know basically kind of leading america maybe in a revolution um and yet the american revolution has already started because um you know lexington and concord happened in massachusetts anyway so um adams goes about convincing everybody it starts with him going to you know virginia richard henry lee who makes a motion for independence and then you know uh my god uh thomas jefferson writes it um Benjamin Franklin says a lot of a lot of things. The South is racist and wants slaves. 
um, and one's an exception for that in, and yet they all resolve to actually declare well, independence. Uh, yeah. And they, yeah. Sign, and they sign it. Basically, that's what happens. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a complicated show, but you got it. And a lot of sort of small little things, but that's it. That's basically that's it. it. They signed the Declaration it. of Independence. Spoiler alert. Spoiler um, alert. Peter Stone also, you know, loves to write a musical where we all know the ending. Hashtag Titanic. Good point. Sail on Titanic coming to city center near you. Um, well, it would be funny if they had done what they did like originally for Chorus Line with this show where like Chorus Line uh, famously originally like it was different people who got chosen yeah, to yeah, yeah. Chorus every, every night. Um, it would be hilarious if like every night it was different. I mean, <laughs> <Not> like, <laughs> well, we didn't sign it tonight. Didn't like make Edwin the deal. Drood. Everybody has to like, <laughs> you pull the audience. We would pull the audience. Are you with, are you with the South? Are you with the North? That could be really, really tough. Yeah. I mean, these days, these yeah. days, not a great, not a great look. Bazinga. I don't even, why did I say Bazinga? That's lame. I don't even watch that show. Um, uh, is this still on? No, it, it's over, but they're rebooting so. it. This is terrible. They're rebooting everything. We're getting so casual. Okay, so that brings us to Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about this show's meaning. Why why does it exist? What what are the author's point? What are they trying to illustrate? Um, So at the risk of being incredibly basic here, I think this show is driven by trying to tell the story of America, right? And um, particularly America in actually like 19, the late 1960s when it was written. Um, I think, I think that's actually its driving, driving point and not to, um, not really to lionize the founding fathers, though it does ultimately, I think, lionize them. Um, Its intent is to make them seem like musical theater characters and to cut against kind of the um the famous portraiture kind of view that we have of them and also the like George Washington you know like can't tell a lie like chop down the cherry tree like oh you know all that you know or honest Abe I guess though he's not but it's trying to take apart some of that um that Americana you know, oh, these are deities that we can't question. On some level, it is trying to pull that apart. And I don't want to say make them relatable, but take away the take away the mystique on a certain level. Um, and that is kind of, I think, its organizing purpose, um, or at least how they set about telling this story, at least in the case of Sherman Edwards um, and his original intent and goal. Uh, but Annika, uh, as the, and but that's certainly not how I, I typically take the question. Um, because I, I don't know that there is a single unifying, I mean, I guess the single unifying thing of all the characters is America, right? Like they do actually is country and, um, you know, party over country, state slash colony over country. Like that is kind of the, what we're, what we're examining here and like, and politics, is it your individual, should you do what you want? Should you do what your colony wants? Um, those are a lot of the questions that they're that they're wrestling with on individual character basis. Um, but Annika, as in terms of a protagonist journey, what do you think that I assume that's how you've taken it? But what do you think um, is the organizing principle of 1776? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, because I do think this is a this is a show that obviously has a very strong driving force behind it, even aside from the protagonist journey, like, you know, similar. I mean, now I brought up course line, so I'm gonna say it again. But like, 
you know, chorus line, you're watching an audition, you know, at the end of it, they're going to, they're going to pick some people um, and you have to know who's getting it, you know? And in this one, it's obviously like, this is, I think a remarkable show because everybody knows the answer, but, and knows the ending, but it's still like getting you along that journey. Um, which incidentally, side note, we can totally cut this, but like, I remember hearing a romance novelist talk once about how romance novels are difficult to write because everybody knows the answer, but you have to make it like actually like innovative along the way and like suspenseful. And I was like, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Um, so that it, this show has that going for it in terms of the protagonist journey. It's interesting because it does have a very strong protagonist, which is John Adams. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know if I would say it's a show that shows a tremendous amount of like personal growth. Cause I'm not sure I would say that the, the John Adams at the end of the show is like really all that different from John Adams at the beginning of the show, except for, you know, I think it's, he is our window in to allow us to see how just complicated and messy any part of history really is. And, and he is a person of great principle, famously, who's like weakness is that he cannot get along with people very well. He's obnoxious and disliked uh, famously. Um, but he has to basically figure out how to do that to, in order to get to, for the, for a larger cause. Um, so I think there is that sense at the end of like, is this, has this been worth it to, to compromise um, in the ways that he has compromised? And yeah, I mean, I think the show definitely says like, I think you're supposed to be left with a little bit of melancholy in terms of like the compromises that are made um, and the reasons behind them. But yeah, I think that's sort of in addition to the celebration of America and the window into history, which like now I think we're used to Hamilton. We're sort of um, the idea of like shining a light on these things is uh, more familiar to us, but it's kind of, I mean, at this time, this was not like something that we, I, I think you saw a lot, the sort of like portrait of an august and revered historical event that is treated very like normally, you know, it's like everybody's arguing about flies and windows and heat and rum and like, they're all just kind of annoying and different, like hate each other. And, you know, it, it just is a little, it's like such a good glimpse and good reminder that, that history is made by people. Um, but on a smaller level, yeah, I think it's, I think it is that. I think it is sort of like, it's made by people and thus it is really messy. It is messy and um, not perfect. And we are all kind of stumbling towards something better um, at all times. And that is to be celebrated. Um, and I think that's a good message. I It's great. You bring up so many great points. And I, I'm glad you also kind of raised the like inner like motif of like heat that is really much like uh, there is like they're talking about the temperature like the literal temperature right but also just like the heat of the the conversation and the heat the pressure like the pressure cooker of heat anyway i think that's an interesting thing the other thing i i found myself thinking about as you were speaking and i i don't know that this um this might be a little bit restating what you said um but what as i, I was listening to you talk i was like well i think in some ways like the thing that propels the show forward is like a need for compassion mm -hmm. um and that's and 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 i mean that like everyone walks in with certain preconceived notions of the particular colonies of the particular characters that's both audience and the characters on stage and yet everyone does kind of at some point there is there is a a need for i don't want to say empathy necessarily but there is like a a 
not even humanity, but like a compassion that everyone is forced to reckon with, whether that is like, oh, you don't see things from my point of view and I have to understand where you're coming from Mm -hmm. um, and how you're getting there, even if I don't agree with you completely. And that through that process of compassion, empathy, whatnot, we get to a larger, greater, larger, greater thing together. Um, so there is like, you could make a, an argument that like community, I mean, like what is not about community? What will the two of us not make about community on some level? Know, but, seriously. but truly, but like, it is a, it is a, an, a plea for compassion, I think for, um, an understanding of people who don't necessarily agree with you much as I think it absolutely has a point. And I think it illustrates that point very well. It does fight vociferously vociferously on both sides of that argument which is one of the reasons i really appreciate the show um as a precursor to a genre of like american political drama that you know it's very west wing it's very precursor to west wing on a certain level and not just because dr josiah bartlett is a character in it um though of course that is the descendant of Ardeen. anyhow um so with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of 1776? Well, sure. So let's go back a little bit. So originally England was the... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I did think about that. I was like, oh my God, I have to do the history of 1776? Jeez. Um, I will not be talking about the political history an actual like American history before this. Instead, I thought I would talk about Sherman Edwards, um, who is the composer and lyricist of this show. Um, This is kind of the only show he wrote, really. Um, And it's an interesting one because I think Peter Stone, who is the book writer, has done more in the history of Broadway. But but this show is really, really so much the baby of this this man. And his story is kind of interesting. So uh, let's dive into that. So Sherman Edwards um, was born in New York and went to NYU and Cornell and studied history. Um, so he's interested in history from the beginning. But he was also, during college, moonlighting as a jazz pianist, playing for late-night radio shows and music shows. So he always had these kind of two different parts of himself, the music and this interest in history. Um, He served in the Air Force during World War II, and then he came back and became a history teacher, but then returned to the piano again. And he played with some of the most notable swing bands and artists at the time, including, including Louis Armstrong, Tommy Dorsey, and Betty Goodman. So after this, he became a pop and rock songwriter, and he worked in the famous Brill Building um, right, and was writing songs for artists, uh, including Elvis Presley. And this is this is kind of, I've seen two different versions of this story. This is the one that I think is sort of more dramatically interesting, so I'll say this, uh, which is just that he was like working one day, and, and he had some tension with um, the colonel that worked with Elvis Presley, who was like famously horrible to work with. Um, who was and cheating writers of a lot of money so anyway he was writing in the brill building and he one day was just like i'm tired of writing rock songs i have an idea for a show and like left um and then went (laughs) and worked on this show so i love that because it's so like eh f this i'm out um but this other version is probably also uh more accurate which is that he had had this idea to write a show about the signing of the declaration of independence for a long time 
And then on his 40th birthday, uh, he was teaching again and decided to quit his job and devote himself to writing the show full time um, and was like working in libraries and doing a lot of research. And uh, he spent six years of dedicated work just writing the show. Um, but either way, I think I think this is a lovely sort of thing because you do see this occasionally in the history of theater that people are just they just have this one thing that they just want to do. And everybody thinks it's an insane idea, which I'm sure Michael will talk about more in, in just a second, but like, they're just convinced that they, they want to do it. And um, that kind of devotion to a sort of seemingly insane ideas is where some of the most interesting shows come from. So, so I celebrate Sherman Edwards and his um, interesting path that brought him to this show, which didn't, did turn out to be a pretty great idea instead of a insane idea. Although I can see why people would be like, oh, what are you thinking? I mean, um, yeah, I, I, yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, so Fling, do you want to take it from uh, from there and, and tell us a little bit more about how it came to be? Yeah, so this is uh, Putting It Together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So as Annika said, Sherman Edwards had this idea and began working on it by himself, writing the music, lyrics, and the book. Um, and like we said earlier, it was really important to him uh, that the Founding Fathers like weren't treated reverently, um, that it was kind of deconstructing that. Uh, and so uh, the producer, Stuart Ostro, who I think we've talked about on the show before, but um, uh, definitely uh, like a co-producer of sorts prior to this. I think this was his one of his first like real outings. Maybe not so, that's a lie. I think he did like the failed adaptation of Miracle on 34th Street called Here's Love, um, a tough look for uh, Meredith Wilson. But anyhow, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, a tough look. And, um, but anyway, uh, he uh, liked the idea, but felt that Edwards needed more established credentials, both himself basically having no musical theater experience um, and also like, you know, so he needed someone to join the team and he convinced Peter Stone to write the book, um, and then put out a press release announcing that, um, uh, Edwards, who, uh, was substitute teaching at, um, a school in Jersey on occasion, um, that the ex history, an ex history teacher would be writing a musical about the declaration of independence. Um, and so, uh, Peter Stone was really instrumental in adding the dramatic tension to the piece that, again, we've also already kind of spoken about a little bit, um, but uh, most significantly in the form of the vote tally board, um, which was not uh, actually a thing in constant, like in uh, Continental Congress. Um, that's Continental. I don't know if I said that earlier. It's the Continental Congress. Um, but the, um, the tally board that um, is a, you know, as annoying as it is when people are like the room is really a character in the piece when they're talking about anything uh this is also one of those <laughs> where the, the vote tally board is kind of a character um and if you've ever done the show it so much of it becomes about the ography and the slap the you know the hits and all that stuff of the tally board um and then also the calendar on the wall which signifies the date and it's ever changing um slash the looming and getting closer and closer toward uh july 4th as as we've said um, and both of those things really, um, I think everybody collectively agrees, are um, game changers in terms of taking the beginnings of what Sherman Edwards had created and really putting um, dramatic tension into it. So they um, brought on uh, the director, Peter Hunt, um, who is a suggestion from Jerome Robbins. Uh, and um, Hunt was actually a lighting designer who had done um, quite a bit of experimental theater 
And Ostro didn't really know how to audition a director. And so he sent him and Stone to the Hamptons for a weekend uh, to get act one down to uh, a suitable length. And then they came back and read him uh, what they'd done. And then he was like, great, now the next weekend, like you're gonna go do act two. Uh, And then after reading that, uh, they basically gave him a nice, like, we'll call you. Um, And and Hunt was so upset, like thinking that he had been like taken advantage of and all this stuff that he went home and started drinking himself silly on scotch, evidently. until he got a call inviting him to Sardi's where the entire team was um, because they wanted to celebrate that he was going to be their director. And apparently he was like, "Um, yeah, so I'm actually already wasted and can't move. So no, I will not be joining you at Sardi's. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) The colloquial version of that, but basically he was like, yeah, I'm not coming. Um, So so yeah, so that was kind of a fun story. Peter Hunt really doesn't have a, um, didn't have much of a directing career really. Um, He was really a light designer um, up to this point. And then, did some more um, directing both in film and theater. And um, so the writing process kind of continues that way. Also shout out, this is also a great um, shout out to writers retreats. Um, And in some cases, writer retreats with directors and or a dramaturg or a creative producer type who can give like strong notes and really help. Um, Just shout out to that. It's a great, you know, we've been doing it for a long time, that writing retreat. And, uh, but I I know, know the show um, is a deep believer in writing retreats. Um, they're very effective they're effective they're effective um so they write a lot write a lot write a lot write a lot um they do um their tryout in new haven their first uh tryout in new haven and um i guess there was like you know as happens with many uh new haven tryouts terrible 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 snowstorms uh and uh weather so all of the reviews like didn't really happen until like their final performance in new haven when they were already like packing up to go to dc um just just a fun little tidbit but while they were in new haven um, the, there was actually a scene, um, I didn't know this until was doing the research. There was a scene that happened that like when the close to the, uh, kind of end of act one, um, but when they're like, we're going to go check in on the troops and they take like a little delegation to go check on the soldiers. Um, they actually followed them, uh, to that location in New Brunswick, um, to see a group of continental soldiers. Um, and that this scene originally ended act one and at, during the scene, Basically, it started with like the starving soldiers. They sang Mama Look Sharp around the campfire um, and they like didn't think they could fight the British. And um, and and then, you know, we're telling that to the to the delegation and then they're so hungry and starving and all this stuff. And then I guess a bunch of ducks like flew over, quote unquote, not real ducks, but like, you know, over the audience and then they are back off, ducks. off the set. Yeah, whatever. And uh, and they sh- successfully shot them all. Um, and then Adams g- gave like gave like a fiery speech telling King George to like watch out like we've got it, um, and uh, that was what ended Act One in a very like uh, at least like original Camelot kind of like fiery speech to end Act One type thing. Uh, they elected to cut that entire scene, um, but they liked Mohawk Sharp and gave it <laughs> Courier, um, and that's actually what then ended Act One. Um, but I, I think. A good cut, ultimately, and uh, kind of counterintuitive. I think a lot of times we we say like, show the drama, like don't just tell us about what happened off stage, show us. Um, and I think actually this is a counterintuitive, but but good note, and uh, keep the song that's working and beautiful. Um, but uh, yeah, we don't need to go to New Brunswick and save that set location. And then there was also a scene that took place in a tavern where Ben Franklin uh, did a number called Doozy Land. Uh, where he like did this whole number with a prostitute 
Um, and I, I'm, I have to presume that because of the name Doozy Land and also like what they wanted to do, it was very comedic and over the top. And I don't know if it was a production number, but definitely like a comedy number. Uh, and they cut it, uh, which uh, enraged Howard De Silva, who was the original Ben Franklin, uh, to the point that he basically was going to quit the production. Um, and then was having lunch with Alfred Drake, who uh, is most famous, I think, for being the original Curly in Oklahoma, uh, who was like, um, you're an idiot. You cannot quit the show. It's the best thing you've ever been in. You've always basically like you've always been an idiot, Howard De Silva, and you haven't had much of a career and you'd be an idiot to not do this. Um, and like you better run down and they had like hired a an alternate or a replacement and he like had to run down to the theater to like save his job basically after Alfred Drake convinced him to stay in the show. So, um, so crazy, fun, crazy stories of, uh, of, of, of what happens out of town. And, um, and so the other like out of town kind of thing um, was that they wrote, uh, I think uh, out of um, this change to the end of act one or what they thought was going to be the end of act one. And then um, opening back two, they wrote the song, the egg, which was inspired, I think probably the only song or one of the few songs in the history of musical theater to be inspired by the poster art. Um, and uh, basically they they wrote it as a, you know, the, they wrote that song as uh, a little way to get into act two or to the scene where they read the Declaration of Independence because they felt like they needed one more uh, one more number. So like I said, the reviews in New Haven really didn't happen until like the final performance. And so when they came out, it didn't affect their new, new Haven run at all. But they got terrible reviews in New Haven. Absolutely terrible. Um, and But they moved down to D.C. and they got amazing reviews in D.C. Um, to all the changes they had made, basically. Um, so with that kind of like they had a little bit of wind, um, wind at their backs when they came into New York. Um, but then while they were in tech in New York, De Silva had a heart attack, a little, uh, it was described as a minor heart attack, um, in the middle of tech and ended up doing the opening night performance with the ambulance waiting outside the hospital, uh, waiting outside the theater. And so he did the opening night performance, then went to the hospital, um, and then his standby covered for him for the next few performances. And also, um, I read on the cast recording, which I did not know, that he is actually, his performance is not memorialized on the cast recording. It's the standby's performance. Which is interesting. An interesting kind of thing, like, you know, within the olden days when, you know, you open a show on Saturday or whatever and record the cast album on Monday or whatever that adage is. Um, Yeah, I guess because he was in the hospital, uh, as as I read. Um, And so it gets amazing reviews. It becomes a smash hit. Um, suddenly, you know, this, you know, just huge, huge lines around the block. Um, there's also a funny story, I guess, like Zorba was running next, next door. Um, and, uh, Hal Prince like sent a note over to Stuart Oster that was like, will you please keep your lines out of my theater? Like as a congratulatory message, which is very funny, (laughs) um, from one producer to another. Um, But it was such a hit. It was performed at the White House. It's one of the few musicals to like have that kind of distinction that it was performed at the White House. Um, And apparently uh, they were concerned about, allegedly they were concerned about the length of the show for the Nixon White House. Um, And so they just offered, you know, why don't you cut cool, cool, considerate men and mama look sharp. Um, And they basically, they basically were like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. So they ended up doing the shot, the, the thing in full with um, the composer sitting right next to uh, Richard Nixon, apparently. Um, and uh, But Nixon, in a, in a cruel twist of fate, did in fact get his way for the original print of the movie when he asked Jack Warner to cut Cool, Cool, Considerate Men 
because it was a it was a not good representation of conservatism. Um, I guess the conservatives in 1776 were not racist enough for Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy, and we're not cutting that. I that's that's history, baby. Um, but yeah, so it wins 20 awards. It's a huge success. It goes up against Hair, which is a show that we've talked about. It is one of those like Tony races between Hair and 1776. 1776 pulls it out and wins, um, and. And yeah, it has a decent run. Obviously, like I said, it gets a movie. It's been revived um, multiple times. Um, both, I mean, I guess most notably by Roundabout twice, uh, once in the late 90s. And then um, last season, um, an all-female revival uh, played uh, the American Airlines Theater. And, um, you know, that was a tough look for 1776. It was not, uh, I'll go on the record as saying, it, not the best production, though I... Uh, will say that I think doing a, an all-female 1776 is a great idea and really, really fantastic. But they made some changes and things that just didn't really seem to be the a great production of the show. Um, for And I'm not alone in that opinion. I think it, it certainly had its fans, but it, it was not very well received. Um, I think mixed mixed to negative reviews. I I did didn't, not and didn't it, and didn't get a Tony nom for best revival. Yeah, um, I'm realizing like and wasn't even in the conversation. Like no, but but uh, but it was a crazy year for yeah for revivals. But it's funny. I like almost I kind of forgot that it was even this last season. So yeah. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside? Sit down, John. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's dive into Sit Down, John, which is the opening number of the show and probably the most famous song in it. It's also quoted in Hamilton, which means that a line from this song and uh, show has now gone diamond, which is what has happened recently with the Hamilton album. I guess that's like a way beyond double platinum, etc. So it's a very famous line now. Um, and this is also the song that Sherman Edwards played for Peter Stone that convinced Stone to sign on to be the book writer of the show. Um, when Sherman Edwards played the piano and croaked out this whole number, uh, Stone said he could see in this one number all of the promise of what the show could be. And I think that's completely true. It really perfectly conveys the character of John Adams, but more importantly, it, con it conveys the dynamic of this Congress and their relationship to Adams. And tells you the tone of the show. It really is brilliant about using uh, the expected sound of what you might predict would be in a show about the founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence. Um, that sort of like earnest, like uh, reverence for all of these people and, and this thing. Um, they are using the sound of that, but they're using it against this completely mundane topics that are in the lyrics. So it's it's really showing you that the show is not going to be that kind of lofty portrait um, of this uh, event or of these people. It's going to basically be about these very normal people who are full of irritation and, uh, you know, petty desires and dreams. Like, it's just, it's all like just a bunch of guys who are annoyed with each other and hot and sweating and just, you know, trying to get things done sort of, but not succeeding. So it's really a, a great opening number, really sets up a lot of stuff that we need for the show. By God, I have had this Congress. For 10 years, King George and his parliament have gulled, cullied, and diddled these colonies. 
And still this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in hell are they waiting for? Sit down, John! Sit down, John! starts with John Adams speaking directly to us in front of the curtain about his frustration with Congress. Um, this tells us immediately that he is our main character, that he is a man of many words, that he is short-tempered and truly sick of the Congress, who he is very frustrated with because he hasn't, they haven't done anything and won't even let him openly debate what he thinks is the most important issue, which is uh, declaring independence. So, as I said, you know, this is so smart because right off the bat, we get this figure from history, founding father, former president, just coming off as a pissed off regular guy. And then we get the curtain going up and we see the whole Congress or like as much of Congress as we see in the show. And the first thing we hear from them is this chorus of voices all singing as one pissed off at John Adams. It's this very simple melody, just two notes with John Lower, as though they are encouraging him musically to move down, to sit down. And it's repeated with this slightly choppy rhythm. Um, it's immediately clear that they that this is something they have said a million times. And something I love about this, too, is that it starts before they sing. There's this kind of bell chime a bit. Um, and then this music, which is kind of undercut by uh, drum rolls. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit more of that. But we're getting these kind of musical references to a lot of very patriotic sounds the drum roll of a battle of like a parade and the bell of course they're in philadelphia um the liberty bell we're, we're hearing these things that are referencing our expectations for what this might be but then of course we are not getting that at all we are instead getting this like chorus of voices just telling this one guy that they are really annoyed with to just sit down so as they keep telling him to to sit down the orchestration has these great fifes in there too we get these flourishes um going with the drums it sounds like i mean it's literally fife and drums it's a patriotic parade but of course, they aren't discussing anything that has to do with the country or politics in this song. And we get some harmonies, too. Like, they've said this so many times that they each have variations within it. Um, and we get some more context. It is hot as hell in Philadelphia. Um, really brilliant use of scansion there, broken scansion, to show their agitation. Um, a little bit, we can hear the heat in that line and our impatience with everything, but mostly with Adam's. And once again, you know, such humor in these orchestrations, crashing symbols on the lines about heat. Um, it's just, it's just again and again, just undercutting what you might think this would be. Um, I really love this. And it's so funny because we're about to watch this whole show about these people who cannot um, find any consensus on anything, really. They they cannot be united on any particular topic. And here at the very start, we are seeing them united. We're hearing these beautiful harmonies. Um, they're united in one voice. Uh, however, they are united about how uh, annoying John Adams is. I say vote yes, vote yes, vote for independence. Open up a window. I say vote yes. Sit down, John. 
vote for independence. Now John is singing instead of speaking as he was, and he's asking everyone to vote yes. And we can tell it's just as repetitive as their sit down, John. It's just basically the same repeated two notes. Um, he's not adding to the debate. It's It really isn't a debate. It's They're just yelling back and forth at each other here. They're, nobody's actually trying to make any arguments. They are stuck in this pattern that they repeat ad nauseum. And we get more voices in the open up a window section, which, of course, we've had a little teaser of since the beginning, but originally was just one voice with a solo. And now we're getting some harmonies in the open up a window section. Um, and, of course, this debate, um, which feels much, much more passionate than the sit down John debate, because obviously they they have a true debate here, which is opening up the window will have a breeze come in and it's very hot but if they open the window then there will be too many flies in the congress and so they um have to figure this out and the new phrase that we get is can't we compromise here which is so funny because again like they are not going to be able to compromise um on this or any other issue but here they're trying here this is an open debate sort of but about the dumbest thing, right? The most human, petty, basic animal things. Like, it is hot. No, but the flies are annoying. What are we going to do? They can't even solve this one issue. So that is just the perfect example of how frustrating this is. And finally, like, we hear we hear how often this has happened because we get this beautiful harmonies on someone ought to open up a window. Again, this is like, we, we know this has happened a million times. We know this is just like variations on a theme and we're getting that musically as well. Right. Like they are um, saying it so often that they're actually like embellishing it, um, which is a great way to show how silly, silly this is. Cause it's like the fancier the music is, the more we see how, not fancy this argument is and of course it sends back john into speaking he has to break free of the repetition repetition of the song to be so annoyed he just cannot bear how how repetitive this is and how frustrating it is that they they cannot even solve this one issue good god consider yourselves fortunate that you have john adams to abuse for no sane man would tolerate it John, you're a fort, we've heard this before. Now for God's sake, John, sit down. I say, yes, no, yes, no, for independence sake. Someone ought to open up a window. I say, yes, sit down, John, for independence sake. Will someone shut that man up? Never! Never! So just really a perfect ending. You know, again, he's just hammering it again and again and tempting to get them to vote yes. And they are just yelling at him no. And we get the sense that he's here. This really isn't at all about the issue. They are just so annoyed with him that they're just going to say no to whatever he says. We get that sense of just like dismissal. It's not really a an actual no with any meaning. It's just a sort of like, please stop. Um and it's just a circle, you know, it's it's such a stalemate. Everyone's annoyed. Everyone's said all this a million times. 
super hot. We can hear that. Something new is happening. And the music is adding all these flourishes as if to underline how totally mundane this all is. Um, this is certainly uh, going to be fun to watch these people interact with each other because we know that the stakes of what they're going to be talking about are, are going to be very high. But also from the beginning, this song is setting us up to think, gosh, how on earth are they going to do this, right? This is locating this debate um, so much. I mean, we're seeing John's uh, conflict, which is that he's so disliked and he's so bad at this. He's not able to break through this at all. He's just like, you know, yelling at them again and again to do this. Um, but also just it sets up the ultimate achieval of these goals as being something that seems even further away than we could have imagined, right? How on earth is this group of people going to be able to find any sort of common ground in order to do this hugely ballsy and wild thing um, and, to, you know, all sign this Declaration of Independence? So I completely understand why Peter Stone was so taken in by this number, because it really shows us the humanity behind this this scene, which, you know, we've all read about in the history books, but it also just, it gives us so many layers of complications um, that we're going to have to watch play out. And they're going to be fun to watch. We know it because it's fun to watch this now. And it's very silly that they're arguing about these flies versus windows. Um, and I love that the orchestrations are kind of proceeding as though this is the greatest debate you could possibly imagine and and the most um you know flag waving patriotic thing you could you could picture so it just is really setting us up for a lot of fun and a lot of drama and we're going to get it in the rest of the show it's a great opener and that brings us to one of our favorite segments how do you solve a problem like maria how do you solve a problem like maria where we talk about some of the issues with 1776, both uh, internal to the show and external to it. So uh, this is one that is, uh, I think it's fair to say that 1776 today is quite controversial. And I and I say that, or it is a show that there's a lot of discussion around, I think. Um, and the revival um, that we talked about earlier certainly um, had to contend with that. And I, I think maybe didn't do so as successfully as they could have, or at least um, it was quite divisive how they chose to handle some some issues and some topics. Um, uh, but I think let's start with 1766. This show is quite historically inaccurate. I think it's fair to say um, it. There there are some quotes that are like it's you know not it's not distracting that it is so um, like not accurate. Um, it's you know just a dramatization of of what it was and and to be fair to the authors there is no, there is no actual official documentation record minutes of what happened in the constitutional congress um there that, that just doesn't exist so they are basing they based a lot of things on the accounts of the people who were there um who of course are many more um in number than is what is able to be portrayed on stage um but you know when I started to look and, and the, at the list of the things that are really quite inaccurate, um, here's just a laundry list of things that, that there are, that could be quibbled with uh, the portrayal of John Adams as um, dislikable or, or unliked. Um, what, sorry. And now I'm forgetting the quote, but on, um, 
obnoxious and disliked. Obnoxious and disliked. Um, is not accurate to his time in the Constitutional Congress. It is accurate post his presidency, which was a very unpopular presidency. But at the time in the Constitutional Congress, he was quite revered and respected. Um, even the use of like um, the political right versus the political left, that's not something that came about until later in the 1700s. Uh, the timeline of voting on the declaration or voting for independence and then voting on the language of the declaration um, is, you know, historically, it seems like they actually voted for independence on July 2nd, and then they signed the deck. They, I think, approved the language of the document uh, of the declaration on July 4th, but then they didn't sign it until August. So that timeline is very hairy. Um, but the, you know, Obviously, a lot of members were combined and characterizations are off. James Wilson wasn't a judge at the time that he was in the Constitutional Congress. Martha Jefferson was actually very sick the summer of 1776 and so did not visit um, Jefferson in Philadelphia. Uh, ben Adams and Franklin, uh, uh, sorry, Ben Franklin and John Adams weren't pals. Um, he, they did actually, Adams did not really like Franklin all that much. Um, and though the musical kind of makes it seem like he didn't like Richard Henry Lee, he actually was good friends with Richard Henry Lee. Samuel Adams is completely absent from, uh, the musical and is really like just stuck into, um, John Adams, which, you know, family relation kind of makes sense in terms of combination, but in terms of being the rabble rouser, that was, absolutely a part of you know the sam adams thing caesar rodney was not elderly at the time that he um got sick and that you know he was like 47 i think um and dickinson was motivated by his time in england and respect for the british constitution and not necessarily you know so there's there's quite a bit that is combined uh you know uh, simplified or just not um, actually accurate at all in order to tell this story. So I guess the the question is twofold, Annika, for me. One, does that matter? Is that bad that we have, um, that in the making of the show, it is quite inaccurate um, and tells a story that is just not, I mean, it's conjecture, but doesn't seem to be quite, you know, in line with what actually occurred. Um, so that's question one. But question two, is that a strength of the show that it has an agenda, it knows what it's trying to do, and it's not just trying to be a document of a documentary, a, do, a documentary. It's not a documentary, it's a musical. So how do we contend with that in looking at the show now in studying the show as a piece of musical theater, but as a piece of history, um, and how it has kind of become the culture text of what happened at the Constitutional Congress when that's not actually what it is. Um, how do you contend with that and with the show in rehearsal and whatnot? Yeah, well, here's what I will say. With my dramaturgical hat on, when I'm working as a dramaturg with writers, I would say the note I have to give more than any other note uh, is that you are telling a story. You are telling a story. And necessarily, you are telling your version of a story because there is no possible way that you can be entirely accurate with every detail of a historical thing. And what I see a lot is people who feel that, I mean, and it's understandable because you're drawn to a piece of history, you're drawn to a historical figure because you find their story interesting. So you want to tell their story because you find it interesting. It makes total sense that you would want to honor as, as close as possible the reality of what happened. But 
that often makes for not a great story to be told on a stage because a you either get so hampered with details that it like you get to the sort of like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened you know it's just like a, a lot of exposition dumps things like that um just not fun to watch or there's just no spark of like the story existing on its own separate from the history it's like if you can read the wikipedia page um and get the same story then that doesn't really make for a good dramatic experience like i think the reality of theater is that you you are it, it has to exist beyond just the good story from history you know there has to be a reason you are telling this story um and you have to own that to some degree so when you look at the kind of laundry list of things that were not necessarily true about this story, I think there's degrees, right? So like the things I really don't care about, and this might be me too, because I'm just not a person who really cares about like dates and time and it's not my forte anyway. But like the idea of like, oh, they signed it on July 2nd, but they, you know, or they, they, um, they accepted it on July 2nd, but signed it on July 4th. Like that's, that that right now I can tell you is terrible drama. You know, like if there if that was in this in this show and it was like, great, we're gonna do this, we're we're declaring independence, then like everybody kind of leaves the stage and comes back on two days later to do the signing. I'm leaving the theater. I don't know why I'm watching. You know, like mm -hmm. you are undercutting your own dramatic structure to such a degree that I don't I don't know why that's better. And sometimes I joke with stuff like that that it's it's like a gift to whoever's writing the program note. And it's a gift to the people in the audience who know that history well enough to be like, actually that's wrong. Like they will feel great about that. Those people love knowing better than than something. And <laughs> you know, and so like I don't care, you know, about that. Um there's other stuff that I think is a little bit more tricky for me like you know some of the characters who in the show are portrayed as being like really against or for something that in reality that was very inaccurate especially for the reasons that are given you know um like that that to me touches a little bit more onto something that's not not great because then you are sort of doing something different than just kind of combining and shaping and changing time and dates you are actually ascribing to people who did exist certain things that were not necessarily true for them and actually we know to be the opposite um so i think that is sort of like a case-by-case -case thing you know um it depends what like like it's suck you know for the it's funny because the john adams obnoxious and disliked i'm like well you know sure but also like he comes across like he is definitely ultimately the hero of the story so i'm like well you know eh, doesn't really bother me that he's been given that but you know um well and the characters that kind of characterization like yeah, yeah. i think yeah yeah it's yeah he, you yeah. you need to have something you're owning that that's a character right um so you know i think it's i think it's a sliding scale basically but i also feel like if you are coming to the theater to get a very accurate description of history with no changes then then you should reassess why you're coming to the theater you know i i think mm -hmm. the onus is a little bit on people coming to the theater to be inspired by a show and then to go and sort of like if there's something that you feel interested in, like go go look at it. Don't don't accept what's in a show necessarily as being a fact, because I don't think that that is 
part of the agreement between a show and an audience to portray only fact. I think they are portraying something else. Um, and we shouldn't quite be holding it to that standard most of the time. And it's funny because I think Hamilton did something very smart, which is, and I know Hamilton's been uh, knocked for some of this too, but like the, the room where it happens is a brilliant, 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 brilliant song for a number of reasons. But part of the part of what makes it so brilliant is it is kind of the show. It nested within the show is a song that basically tells us as the audience, like we don't know. We cannot know what the real story was because we cannot know, you know? So it's kind of like a reminder that whatever we are seeing is like somebody's version of it. You know, there has to be somebody's version of it. Um, who lives and who dies, who tells the story. Like it's, it's in the DNA of Hamilton in the way that like 1776 never kind of presents itself as like, you know, this is a version of what happened there. Because I think also like that, that is not where theater necessarily was at that time. It was not in a place where we needed to sort of like comment on the the storyteller as as the narrative voice and the source of narrative power in the same way that we do, especially for something like history. Like I think at the time it was it was kind of revolutionary enough to take this thing that is such a like piece of of revered history in America and to actually like look at it as a, as I said before, as just like a, a normal thing with regular people who are just trying to figure it out. You know, like that is, that is something that at the time was enough to, to say, like, I think if it had, if you, if this show had come out being like, but also who am I, who is this? What, who is telling the well, story? Then it would like, nobody would have, like, yeah. we weren't ready for that. Yeah. Like not in the same way, but like Franklin does have the whole, like, yeah, but what are we are men? We are like, no more, no less. We're not demigods and history will not like, you know, we can't be worried about what history will say about us. We have to do, you know, like whatever yeah. that quote is, I, I'm not pulling it out, but it is, it's like the, it's the 1969 like version of that in yeah. some ways, like right. it is, it's doing it without, like it is, it's a part of it, just not in the same exact way, right? Totally. That is kind of its, its thing. And, and even that like quote in that moment, I think goes back to what we were talking about in Why God Why, like, and it's kind of like trying to deconstruct and humanize the entire, the entire thing instead of making them demigods. Totally, totally. And I think that is kind of the nugget point of the show is sort of like these were men, they were not demigods, you know. So but now it's like we we know that our audiences now are very familiar with the idea that like these are not heroes, they are men. Now we have to go farther to say, well, like, but who is telling us the story? And also, like, are we being irresponsible if we are representing these people as being in any way sympathetic if they have elements that make them deeply unsympathetic to us today is that is that an acceptable thing well, to do and so that's a great transition to like the 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 larger uh topic that obviously takes up a lot of the oxygen when talking about 1776 which is the discussion of slavery and are we glorifying people who and by extension the the people in the room who made the in this dramatic telling of it, the the uh, the deal that we would leave certain people out of all men are created equal, <laughs> that certain um, races, uh, you know, ethnicities, genders uh, would not be initially included in that. Um, and are we glorifying these? Are we glorifying this compromise in such a way um, that uh, is problematic? 
and 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 how do we contend with that? And uh, my my answer or comment is again taking it back to the script and that moment that I just talked about. Like, it's not attempting to present them as like you know anything other than men who were trying their best. Um, and some people were not ready to do that yet. Some people, frankly, are still not ready to do that, and they are a part of this country. Um, and that is real, you know, like I'm, while as terrible as it is to say, I am sure that you could go to corners of this country who would all be all too happy to own slaves. And that's gross. <laughs> that's not great. Um, and yet it is still actually a part of some people's disgusting view of the world that I think is abhorrent. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I'm not trying to like make, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to make light of it. It's disgusting, but like it is real. And that is something that still exists on some level. 1776 is as much about the creation of the Declaration of Independence as it is a comment on the state of politics in the late 60s in America. And while slavery would have been the topic in 1776, I think you can say that the topic in the late 60s were civil rights and the Voting Rights Act and things that were still very heavily, though at this point codified into law, very much up to debate and people disagreed about and thought that people shouldn't and talk about like, you know, literacy tests and the Southern strategy and all the different things that were done to disenfranchise voters in this country. While they are not the exact same thing, obviously, it is on some ways the show is attempting to be an allegory for that, I think. Um, why else does Mama look sharp there other than kind of as a comment on Vietnam? Like there are these like different things that it is using as a parallel to talk about the country at the moment. I know I mentioned like the right and the left of it all and all that stuff. Um, but to I, I got a little ahead of myself, but Annika, like how how do we contend with that discussion in particular about slavery and um, are we glorifying the argument around slavery in um, in giving it credence um, in the voice of Rutledge, who again was not even the leading voice about slavery in the Congress, which I did not include in that list, but that is a mischaracterized thing. Um, and yet he uh, is basically indicting the North as benefiting from slavery as much as the South. The South just deals with it, basically. Um, and so like, you know, everyone's hands are covered in this in this sin. And how dare you act superior to it, which it is not inaccurate, um, as I think we've we've come to talk about. So so or, and come to realize and or accept um, more and more as we study history and as, um, you know, more and more people uh, are educated on the realities of the history of the country. So how do we deal with that? How do we contend with that? What are your thoughts on the subject? Um, or anything that I just offered in my thoughts on the subject. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's such a good point, and it's such a meaty point. And I, I think you're right to say that there's definitely allegories to what was happening when the show was written. And I think it, that is one of the strengths of the show is that that is both true, but also when you see the show, it doesn't feel like, what is this doing here? This must have been specific to the time. You know, like Mama Look Sharp is a great song because it reminds you of the stakes of what is happening outside this room where these leg men are you know, just arguing with each other, like, um, this heartbreaking, like, people are dying for this cause. Um, and yes, it absolutely does feel like something that would have resonated a lot during Vietnam. And, you know, the slavery question, it's interesting. I, 
I think that um, molasses to to rum is. I think that the point that the song is making is very good and important. You know, I think that. Anka Chapin endorses slavery. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Joe Rogan Um, over here. I know, right? Fighting on another show. I'm sorry. We're not. Let's, I don't, I don't know that he's litigious. Anyway, moving on. Ben Shapiro, moving on. Okay. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I, I think that that is sort of a central part of the show is to sort of say, you know, this is like that there is hypocrisy in claiming that you do not. That like there was hypocrisy in anybody involved in this argument and these these issues trying to claim a, a complete moral superiority. Um, I think that is a really interesting and you know uh, important point to be made. And I think that it's one of the strengths of the show that it isn't just that that song isn't sort of like slavery is great no slavery is bad you know it's the sort of like this is much more complicated than you are pretending it is um and uh i think that is a that is an important point i think that is a an interesting argue an interesting complicated argument especially for a show written by a bunch of northerners who want to think of themselves as being sort of like you know, on the on the right side of history, and they would have been on the right side of history, you know, because obviously the North was not was not involved in slavery at all. And the reality is that isn't true. Um, you know, where it gets more complicated for me is like, you know, th- the show does put words in the mouth of people who did not feel that way. You know, Thomas Jefferson is definitely presented as being someone who like they, they do accuse him of of having slaves, which he did have. Um which is good that they didn't try to pretend that he wasn't uh, someone who supported slavery in some way. But he says, like, I've resolved to free them, which he didn't. You he know? didn't. So it's right. Like, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is where I think the, the criticisms of the show are very apt, which is that, like, they are taking figures in history who were, like, on the quote unquote, like, right side of um, the right being correct, not right being, like, political, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of the Declaration of the Independence with today like the revolutionary like today we're all like yes that was the right move we we wanted to secede from england like this is correct the show does want to take the people who are involved in doing that the most and make them the less the least bad of these people you know like and so jefferson is lionized a bit you know um franklin is is given some words that like weren't true i mean but he's a little bit more like he was an abolitionist just not quite to the degree that he is in the show which to me is a lesser harm because well like, right yeah like he didn't you know, become the president of all that until like after after revolution. right yeah 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 which doesn't matter as much to me because i'm like but he was that eventually you know like like saying that jefferson uh, saying that franklin was an abolitionist a little earlier than he actually was is less of a problem to me than saying that like thomas jefferson was like no i will free my slaves and he he just had no intention to do that mm-hmm. so you know that is where i think this is correct that like it is it is whitewashing a little bit the histories of some of these people who are complicated and i get why they have because like again you know it's already a very complicated show it's much easier to sort of like portray these people as be like that kind of complexity which is very complex is hard to put into a a plot simply um especially when you have a lot of people a lot of characters but 
it is, I think, problematic. It is certainly problematic. Um, so again, degrees, I think it's degrees. And I, I'm not sure, I mean, honestly, if I were like directing the show, I don't know what I would do about that particular part of it because it is written into the show now. That is the show. So I think, you know, I, I mean, I think, it, I think it becomes a point of view conversation because like you can illustrate certain things with point of view and staging and like you can try to contend with it in a way that is truthful to now and what we know, even though it's not in the text, if it doesn't seem to detract too much from like the energy of the scene or the propulsion forward of the action or whatnot. Like, I think there are ways that you can contend with some of those things or like half truths slash falsities mm -hmm. that like that i think there are ways that you can color them that are you know because like you know even even as you were talking about it not to like i'm not trying to completely pick apart what you're saying because i agree with basically everything you said but you were like well he had no intention of of like of releasing the slaves well he might have had intention but then he didn't so yeah maybe it's just like he's actually not as resolved when he says that as he as the text says, like maybe you just color it with a point of view that's like, well, I have already resolved to do that. Like, yeah. you know, like that in and of itself does not, that that terrible line yeah. that I would not ever give to an actor because directors shouldn't give line readings. Like if you just break up the thought a little bit, suddenly it's like, well, are you gonna do that, my guy? Like, were right. you gonna do that? And like, yeah. there are ways like that I think you can embrace, yeah. embrace the reality with what is on the page and kind of marry the two. That's a good point. And I think Molasses to Rome kind of opens the door to that because Absolutely. it sort of asks the question of like, you know, oh, really? Like you're so, you, you think you're so like. Yeah, you think you're so much better. Morally pure on this side. Yeah. And like, you know, are you really like, so yeah, I think, I think it's, it is, there's, there's a lot in there. Um, It's not, it's certainly not like, oh, these angelic people who did, you know, have no flaws. They're very flawed. Right. But it, maybe they're not quite as flawed as we would like to see portrayed right. now and so how just you know taking that into consideration and and speaking of other considerations when we uh when we do 1776 and the, there's a lot of conversation about sh you know should this sh show be performed in uh one through sit through um should we put it in our intermission um the you know they're basically the suggestion is if you're going to do an intermission do it after mama looks sharp um but then like the recent revival did it after he plays the violin um, I, and so I, I think there are probably a variety of, you could probably do it after a cool, cool concert, consider it men if you wanted to. Um, I, I, I don't know how much the licensing houses really care about where you put intermission in a show like this, that it is a little bit of a moving target. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll wait to hear from the professional reps at MTI on that. But the, but Annika, I, really the question I want to pose to you is, one, do you think that there, you know, do you have a strong opinion about where it should be in this show in particular? But part two, what do you think makes a great intermission? Like, what is the, what, what are the things that you're looking for in any kind of, you know, show? Like, what are, because I, there are lots of shows where I think we could have a conversation like, is intermission in the right place? Um, or it could go here, it could go there, you know, whatever. What do you think makes the ideal kind of intermission beat? I mean, I think, I think it has to be somewhere that leaves you understanding why you would come back for act two. You know, I think that's just the basic thing. Like you need to know, like the, the dream of that is sort of the like, you know, weekend in the country where it's like tee it all up. Like we, everything mm -hmm. is like 
on the precipice. Well, like what's going to happen when you get back? Um, obviously that's a high degree of difficulty and, uh, understandably celebrated, but like in this case, I think, um, you know, it's interesting because there is such a, such a larger driving force in this plot. Like, I think it's, it makes sense that there's been some debate about where to put the intermission. Cause it's not like there's going to be a, like, there's no cliffhanger really where it's sort of like, but will they sign the declaration? Because that is the entire show. So it's mm-hmm. not you know, um, you will have that drive in different places. However, I feel like putting it after um, he plays the violin makes no sense to me because that just feels like it's sort of in the middle of kind of action as opposed to Mama Look Sharp, which feels like it's such a different emotional thing than anything we've seen on stage so far. It's so different. It reminds us of the stakes, as you said. It totally reminds us of the stakes. I think at that point, John Adams has taken everybody to New Brunswick, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's also like, it's a good place for there to be a little bit of a time jump because I do think this show plays a little bit fast and loose with like how long it takes to get places. You know, (laughs) like it Mm -hmm. feels like some journeys like are going to take a week and then like the next time it happens, it's like, Oh, I'll, I'll be back today with him. And you're like, wait, what, how long does it take? Anyway, so like, it's nice to kind of remove that question. So I would say um, definitely Mama Look Sharp is the, is the right place. Although it's not, it's actually kind of an unusual um, end of act one beat because it is usually you don't have something that's like so emotional and kind of heavy at the end of act one, you would kind of jump off with a little bit more energy and um, drive. I, I find the intermission conversation generally to be so interesting because I think there are lots of shows where you can have different, yeah, like, where some things feel like, okay, like Defying Gravity, obviously a great end of act, but also does that feel like weirdly complete in a weird way? I mean, that's why they're doing the Wicked movie in two parts. You, you know, oh, is that why? big eyes, big eyes emoji. Um, yeah, but mm-hmm. like, you know, like it could feel complete in some way. Like, and we, you know, everybody laughs out into the woods, like people not coming back for act two because they think it's over. Although um, the narrator does literally say to be continued, um, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> he literally says to be continued, but like there are like things that could feel complete even if they aren't. And like, uh, so I, I always wonder like, you know, he plays a violin just, I, I don't want to spend all the time shitting on the last revival, but it was just, I was so like, what? what it's a weird what like i I was it did not it was not it for me um very very odd very odd yeah on a different subject let's talk about some of our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things in 1776 so who is your favorite character in 1776 annika you know i love benjamin franklin I just, he's so much fun and he's so witty and, and so like aware of his own ridiculousness. And I just always have fun when he's on stage. I think it's a great answer. I have really struggled with this because I would really like to have a very, like, I'd love to, ha- I'd love to pull out and say that like, oh, my favorite is, you know, the Reverend John Witherspoon. I, I'm not going to be that interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I I really wish, because there are really great, I mean, truly, shout out to like fun, um, fun small characters who are on stage. Yes. Um, but McNair. Like, great, McNair. Like there are lots of really good, um, there are lots of really fun smaller characters and I wish I could like elevate one over another. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say 
at the risk of sounding um, like a Republican, that John Dickinson is my favorite character. And I, and I say that only because I think he has, he provides such great argument in some of those like long scenes um, and especially in to to uplift something great about this last revival, Carly Carmelo as John Dickinson was fantastic, um, absolutely fantastic. Um, but there's such a great there's such a great argument from him so often um, that as an as sort of antagonist to John Adams, I think he's a really great antagonist because I I hate how right he is about a lot of things, and I'll get to that in one of my other my favorite miscellaneous thing. But I'm gonna go ahead and say uh, Dickinson because I I think. He is dramatically quite an interesting character. Great. I love that choice. So what's your favorite song in 1776? Oh, I since I ever first saw the show, which is when I was a kid and I saw that first uh, roundabout revival, um, The Lees of Old Virginia is just my favorite. It's the I, best. It's such a bop. I love all the puns. It was my runner up. It's a great, it's a bop. Puns, yes, speak on it. What about you? What's your favorite? Uh, so my favorite is going to be sit down, John, because I, I absolutely love it. I get stuck in my head. I think about it a lot. Um, and I also say anytime I'm in any, uh, conversation with, um, someone named John, um, shout out to, <laughs> shout out to uh, friend of the friend of the program and, uh, my good friend, uh, John O'Brien, who I, I frequently tell to sit down, John, um, but any John truly, I'm like, yeah, sit down. Um, so I love that song. It's it, also at 90 seconds. It's a great. It's a great, effective little bop. Amazing. Excellent choice. What's your favorite miscellaneous thing about 1776? You know, I mean, I'll do I'll do a smaller one and then I'll do a bigger one. Um, the smaller one is I think I I think there's something so brilliant about the constant debate about opening or closing the window as a yeah. runner. Um mm-hmm. Because it's such a stupid thing and it's so real. And also it really, really captures how much these people have trouble just getting along with each other on the on the most basic level. And it's so it's like it's a comedy thing, but also it feels like um it is actually really, really a great indication of something larger than that. And I love it. We I'm gonna say out loud in this moment, it may be worth us adding a a, a line to favorite things, um, which is favorite runner slash favorite mm-hmm. like inside joke to the show. Cause I feel like that's we take that up in miscellaneous oftentimes, but like because like mine would be like the whiskey, the like I want whiskey, you can't have whiskey, like that whole that yes. whole with is is so great. Um, but yeah, all the it's a great bit, the opening of the window and that little quibble, it's great. Um, so I have two as a in miscellaneous thing i i absolutely love the final moment of the show and that like you know finale ultimo like track on the album it's really hard like it will bring me to tears like i get all the chills thinking about it um and i I think it's a really powerful moment of theater um and of drama uh to the point it's like one of those things i've like tried to describe to other people about like how amazing the show is and i'll like go on the entire diatribe about like the show and then like this moment at the end and everyone like politely nods their head and it's like cool why did you just take 20 minutes and i'm like no but it's so amazing (laughs) but it's so i mean it is so amazing this show is amazing in that way because you are at the edge of your seat for that ending and 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 everybody knows what's gonna happen and it happens and then there's just that like silence yeah it's like that the weight of that moment and then like when they actually sign it and the bell the bell tolling like the whole thing i just i get chill like i podcast famously a visual medium um but i 
God, I get chills. It's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my other one, I, and I use, I, I use this quote all the time because I, I think it, when I'm talking just about like anything in life, um, but the quote that John Dickens says, um, I think in the middle of cool, cool, considerate men, um, uh, he says, don't forget, most men would rather protect the hope of being rich than face the reality of being poor. And I think it is such a blistering truth layered in the midst of this entire show that I think remains true today, remains true of our politics today, um, and says so much about like just American politics and the American psyche and and probably the world psyche as well. But I, I just think it is a blisteringly true and and haunting, haunting line that he like just, you know, blatantly illustrates and, and says like point blank as to why they take a lot of the positions that they take. Um, yeah. It's amazing to me. It is very good. It is very good. This is just a great book. I mean, Peter Stone really, really did is. a beautiful job. Really is. And that will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So 1776, obviously, I, I think just as a, you know, unlike a lot of other countries and um, like, you know, Western countries, especially um, because we know the Western canon there, like Shakespeare has a whole category of plays he wrote called history plays. Um, and America doesn't have that kind of rich tradition of um, dramatizing American history on stage in the same way. Um, and I think 1776 is a real like pioneer in that genre. Um, and, and without 1776, you know, like, I think that is a huge, like, you know, and just putting American politics on stage and being a political musical, I think, um, is, uh, is part of its place. And, and, and like we said, we've talked about the Peter Stone book a ton, but it's such a well-written, um, play. It is one of those, like, famously, I hate the phrase. Um, I've said famously, I'm saying famously so much. Um, but I know I, I have two in this. Episode. Uh, it's, it's been bad. Um, but the, uh, but famously, I, you know, I say all the time, I hate when people, uh, say, well, it's really a play with music. Um, but the exception to that is, um, I, I made the exception for like My Fair Lady in 1776, because <laughs> 1776 is just a really fantastic play. But, um, Annika, what, what are, what, what do you think is there's supposed place? I mean, I think it, it is one of the most influential shows in the canon for sure, because I feel like diving into history in the way that it does and showing history coming alive in the way that it does really unlocked something for a lot of different writers um, to, to show that America... To, to show America as a character a little bit... Um, in the way that this show does by, by taking a story that is so like, it's, it, there's a lot of shows obviously. And before this one that have dealt with America, I mean, Oklahoma famously is like, you know, famously. Here we sure. Go sure. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> uh, Oklahoma. Uh, iconically. There um, you go. <laughs> there we go. But like, this is, I think, you know, the reason everyone thought it was insane because it's like, it is a story, a very complicated story that everybody sort of knows. And like, how do you do that? And so to do this so well, I think really unleashed um, a lot of different writers in in the future. Like, I think there are so many shows that have become classics that would not be able to be written if this show didn't exist to show 
what could be done on some level. So, you know, um, I mean, certainly and most obviously, as we've said, is Hamilton, the kind of idea of like showing who these people were. Um, and, and that is such an interesting conversation between those shows. But so I, th- I think that there is something really revolutionary about um, just the very nature of what this show is and, and having that suspense in something that you know, but also showing the comp, the complexity and the um, compromise and all of these different things. And, you know, the people I, I think is, is great. So I, th- I think this is one of the most, you know, even though I don't, I don't think it would necessarily like make, like, I don't think it's, it feels like it's at the top in the top five when people say like the greatest musicals in all history, like oh, this yeah, one doesn't yeah, feel yeah. like it's like necessarily celebrated among that list, but but I think it's it is definitely one of the most influential. So it it looms large. So that wraps it up for our deep dive into 1776. But before we go, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? Okay, here's the clue. The novella this show is based on was originally called Love in Black and White. And that will make sense once you know what the show is. It's such a good clue. I wonder, I wonder if listeners of the program will will get it. This is a this is a fun one. It'll be good. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. We'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Bye.